Welcome to the Cello Sherpa Podcast, where we explore all aspects of the climb to the summit from intermediate musician to the professional stage. Check us out online at thecellosherpa.com or follow us on Twitter and Instagram at thecellosherpa. I'm Joel Dallow, your host. I joined the cello section of the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra in 1999 and founded the Riverside Chamber Players based in Roswell, Georgia in 2003. Today's episode is sponsored by Clear Resources, your premier resource for compliance, legal, ethics, and risk. For more information, visit them online at clearresources.com. Today's guest is Dariusz Skoroczewski, who since 2011 has been the principal cellist of the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra. Dariusz and I attended the Peabody Conservatory together, and we were both students of Stephen Cates. He also just appeared as one of our panelists on our last episode where we talked about rosin. Welcome back to the Cello Sherpa podcast. Thank you so much for having me here, Joel. So you grew up in Warsaw, Poland, and you started the cello at six years old. Can you talk about how you ended up picking the cello and what your childhood was like in Poland? Absolutely. Like you said, at six years old, we have a slightly different system of music schools in Poland. And I think that's kind of Eastern European system that you have actual music elementary schools specifically designed for kids who are going to be musicians in the future. And of course, not everybody becomes a musician, but that's the idea. So I remember at six years old going to an entrance exam. And at the time, I was already very tall for for a kid. <laughs> I'm now six five and a half or so, so I grew up to be a tall guy. And at the time, at seven or six or seven, six and a half, I believe, I was already tall. And the three choices for instruments were piano, violin, and cello. And there are so many pianists in Poland, as you can imagine. Everybody wants to be the next Chopin. <laughs> and I was apparently too tall to be a violinist, so the cello was the natural choice to be taken then and also my parents wanted me to play the cello because my mom actually is a retired double bass player oh and wow she had a beautiful career as a bass player in the warsaw opera for many decades so that's kind of the connection that i have to classical music wow and so let's talk about that entrance exam because now i'm fascinated by that did you have to have any sense of musical ability how did they know that you were somebody who should be put on a music track at the early age of six? Yeah, that's a good question. I actually remember this because certain memories kind of stick with you for the rest of your life. And I remember going into this dark room with you know a panel of, I suppose, judges, and they were just asking me to sing a song of some sort. I don't remember what I sang. And they asked me to repeat notes that they would play on the piano. Oh. And apparently I could do that well enough that they accepted me to the school. And they just looked at me how big my hands were at the time. And, and they thought, yeah, that, you know, I guess the cello was the way to go. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit then about what your childhood was like in Poland? I mean, I'm assuming that at the time that you were growing up there, it was still communist. Is that correct? That is correct. My memories are kind of coming to me as living in a sort of a gray city, uh-huh. <laughs> not too much neon lights, not too much consumerism at that time. So, you know, it was not very flashy, but not too many distractions at the same time. So that kind of helped me to focus on the on the cello starting at a very early age. Yeah. And when communism fell, that was in 1989, is that correct? Yes, I do remember that very clearly too, because I was already, you know, 17 or so. And actually, I used to go to West Germany 
quite a lot because my mom's brother, my uncle, is also now a retired violinist, but he, he played in Bamberg Symphony, which is a really, really great orchestra. And I used to go visit him quite a lot for the summers. And it was quite an experience to see both sides of the Iron Curtain mm-hmm. for me to see how people live in the West versus uh, back home. So that was super interesting. I used to take a train, a 12-hour train, and, and see the the train has to go through Eastern Germany, and I would see the soldiers with the German shepherds, you know, all that stuff that you now see in the movies. Yeah. And I, I saw it with my own eyes as a, as a you know, 12-year-old, 13-year-old kid with a cello, because I would go there for the summer sometimes and stay there for a couple of weeks or so. So that was quite an experience to see the differences. So when... That changed when communism ended in 1989. How did that affect your mother's career in the orchestra? I don't think it really affected her at all. A lot of musicians actually remember the communist times very fondly because those orchestras were at the time fully sponsored by the state. So there was no need for private donations of any kind. It was all like pretty decent living at the time. And her orchestra actually was also very lucky because it would travel a lot. Even as an opera company, imagine the kind of production that would take the opera on tour, like go to Paris or go to you know Madrid or something, or, or anywhere in, in Germany. That kind of production to involve a whole orchestra, plus the singers and stage and all that stuff. But she used to go quite often to the Western countries and also that continued actually, obviously after the curtain fell. So yeah, it, it was a very interesting career to have at that time to see on the both sides of the 1989. Mm-hmm. And then you came to Peabody in 1990, is that correct? That is correct. I actually came to Interlaken for summer the year before Okay, because a couple of my friends did the same a couple of my Polish friends went to the camp and actually stayed for high school or something and then went to college. And I kind of wanted to follow their steps. I do say that it was a great career to have as a musician, but I kind of wanted to experience what my uncle was experiencing in Germany, a little bit more Western culture, so to speak. So I, you know, I wanted to go to study in America and that was really strongly ingrained in my desires at the time. So I went to Interlaken first for the summer, which was eye-opening in so many ways. I'm sure. To see a <laughs> youth orchestra play at such an incredible level. Yeah. Because back home, you know, you study solo stuff and chamber music maybe a little bit, and the orchestra part is really put on the back burner. It's just not existing that much at all. In high school, I'm talking about. Maybe yeah. later in college, it's a different story. But what my experiences were, that that was not really that important at all. So going to Interlaken and seeing the level of dedication that everybody had towards the orchestra was just incredible. And I don't know if the listeners are familiar with challenges at Interlaken. I'm not sure if they still have them. <laughs> I heard rumors that... I think they uh, do. Yeah, they yeah. do. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> I've had heart attacks every, you know, every week <laughs> because of those things. Then I realized that those orchestra excerpts are... I actually probably didn't even think then that those are going to be really important in the future to me. <laughs> so as soon as I went to Peabody, of course, and then I saw that orchestra excerpts are very important. 
Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about those challenges because I went to the academy for two years, right. which people that are regular listeners on this program know that about me. We didn't have challenges, fortunately. So can you tell our listeners what those challenges consisted of that made you nervous every week? Well, every week, I'm not sure what day of the week was. It's Thursday or something. Somewhere in the middle of the week, there would be what seemed to be a cello sectional, but it was not. Everybody would sit in their seat and whoever was directing the challenges would ask the last person from the last stand to play a certain passage and then the person slightly above them, the next chair up, would also play the same passage and people would put their heads down and vote who was better. Oh, if the person in a 10th seat was better than nine, they would switch seats and it would go on up and up and up. It was actually possible to go from the 10th seat to the first seat. You just had to win all those challenges along the way. Oh, you had to win everyone. You would have to win, yeah. just challenge the first No, 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 okay. you, have to, you have to go one person <laughs> by first. And it happens not all the way through, but it happened that somebody in the 10th chair, I think, went to like, you know, sixth or even fifth chair. Unfortunately, I never got past the second stand. <laughs> so it was actually fine with me. I sat in the third chair for the most of the summer, which was fine. Yeah. But those were really traumatic experiences for me. And that's something that I don't remember fondly. <laughs> yeah, it takes a certain kind of personality to be able to tolerate that. And it's funny you say that because I was actually stuck in third chair for most of high school oh, in well. that orchestra. <laughs> right. <laughs> Would you have been able to come to Peabody if the Iron Curtain had not come down by then? I think I would have, although it was certainly, I would want to think that it was easier after that. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was just so short after that. It was 1990s. I, I applied at the beginning of that year and it was just so dramatic. All the events in the world were dramatic. We had also free elections for the first time or semi-free elections and the communist government fell and it was just so many events happening at the same time, which might have helped students to go to the West in some ways. Yeah, I remember actually being at Interlochen in my, I guess, junior year and watching the wall come down in Berlin, right. East and West Berlin. Right. So it was definitely imprinted in my mind as a very historic moment and incredible that you lived really to see both sides of that. That's why I thought wanted to talk about it because I thought people would be interested to hear. Sure. So how did you pick Peabody then? Well, I picked several schools, to be honest, and Peabody was the most gracious with their scholarships at the time. And actually, I've heard about Stephen Cates mm -hmm. back home already. So I chose to really pursue this as much as I could. And back then, you could make an audio tape and send it in and decisions were made. And I was invited just basically based on the audio tape that I made back home. Yeah. So that was incredible. But <laughs> I guess you have to make CDs now or videotapes or whatnot. You just have to show up. I don't know how the process is, but back then, just audio tape. I actually did go to a professional studio to do it. Back then, you couldn't make one really at home at all. Yeah. These days, you can buy a microphone and you have a computer that can make all these cuts and what whatnot. But I went to a recording studio in Warsaw and had it done. I I don't exactly remember what I played. I think Bach's Third Suite or Locatelli Sonata and something else. Mm -hmm. And it was good enough. And I came to Peabody based on that. Yeah, and I think now almost everything requires video, at least, of course. so that you can't edit or send your favorite professional cellist playing right, right. <laughs> as yourself. Yeah, but you know, in my defense, making cuts on analog tape was probably so difficult at that time, and, and 
probably expensive that I, I think it was live takes actually what I what oh, I yeah. sent in. <laughs> yeah, I imagine so. So when you left Warsaw to come to the States, did you have any intention of going back after studying here or how did that unfold when you graduated from Peabody? I think I fell in love with the idea of orchestra life here actually. So I don't think I was ever thinking about going back. I knew that, you know, solo career is like so impossible <laughs> here mm-hmm. and I wanted to be a professional musician so I felt like orchestra life is the path I wanted to take I actually first before auditioning for orchestras I went for two years to this program in Montgomery Alabama and I was a principal there there is a fellowship there a two-year fellowship for a concert master and a principal cellist and that was kind of like a bridge between somewhat solo playing an orchestra situation, which was really helpful. I practiced a lot. I played many recitals and I played a couple of concerts with the orchestra. It also gave me a lot of time to take auditions and prepare for those because, you know, it's a two-year program and you can't extend it. So you have to find something during those two years, which I did. I got into Washington Opera Orchestra and I played there for a while before joining the Baltimore Symphony. That's right. I forgot about that path. And I guess at the time you had to be employed somewhere to keep your visa. Is that correct? Yes. And some at that time, and I'm not sure what it is now, but you can get this artist visa, they call it, and you have to have a lawyer to apply it for you. So, you know, There's all kinds of paperwork and the institution has to be behind you while doing that. And so that had to be done in Montgomery and then again in Kennedy Center and by the time I was in Baltimore, I think I was getting a green card at the time, so there was not an issue anymore. Did you take a lot of auditions while you were in Montgomery, or did you just have a lot of early success at winning them? Well, I had this one success, which was amazing, because these were all opera excerpts, and I didn't know anything about them. But what helped was I went to Poland at some point before the audition, maybe a couple months before, and I played for my old teacher. He was a cellist in the Warsaw Opera, so he knew all of those Wagner and Verdi excerpts and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. I mean, unbelievable (laughs) stuff, all in six flats mostly, you know, just for fun. (laughs) (laughs) Those are the best keys, I think, to sing in. Yeah, I think so. I think there's something to that. But for playing on a cello and, you know, double flats and all that stuff, it's not very pleasant. But that was very helpful to play for him a couple of times and come back. And and I got very, very lucky because, as you know, winning auditions, there's some luck involved in that. This has to be your day, and there's some luck with that too, I believe. Yeah, so you played in the Kennedy Center Opera Orchestra for how long was that? Just about six months only, because I won a one-year position in Baltimore Okay, very shortly after that. After joining the opera, I joined in September, and I think the audition for Baltimore Symphony, one-year position was in December or something like that. And I was lucky again to win that. And to be honest, I did not like playing in Kennedy Center. I didn't enjoy opera, even though my whole life I saw the opera orchestra play (laughs) because of my mom being an orchestra musician in opera. I didn't enjoy it. I also had a flu at the time, I think. So it was not a pleasant experience towards the end. So I did all I could to get out. And I'm I'm sure, you know, orchestra musicians from operas are going to hate me for saying things like that, but I just didn't want to be there anymore even though it was a pretty nice job 
But my intention was to play in a symphony orchestra on stage without hitting my head on the, you know, top, <laughs> on the, the pit, roof of the pit. So I took that audition, I won, and I quit Kennedy Center basically immediately. And I gambled with my life tremendously because it was just a one-year position. And luckily at the time, shortly after that, maybe a few months later, they decided to award me a full-time position and my gamble paid off. Yeah. And you played in this section for how long? I played in the section for about a year or so. And then they had a third year opening. So it kind of brought me back to the Interlaken camp in a little bit, <laughs> in a way. <laughs> so I was fortunate in winning that audition. That was a national audition, not just a one-year position or anything like that. So that was a big deal for me, and I was super happy with that. And I sat in the third chair for quite a while, actually, until our principal at the time, Ilya Finkelstein, left for Cincinnati. Mm -hmm. Then they had the principal opening and there was an internal audition and then national audition and got lucky with that. And after some difficult times going back and forth, finally, I was awarded that, that position and granted tenure. So I've been there since, like you said, 2011 or so. It's actually amazing. You don't often see somebody move from the section up to a leadership position and then into principal. That just doesn't happen very much within the orchestra because I think the mentality a lot of times is orchestras tend to feel like there's always somebody better that's outside the orchestra. Oh, absolutely. I, I agree. And the amount of luck that I witnessed in that path is tremendous. And I, I see that, like you say, the grass is always greener somewhere. And sometimes the orchestras don't see the amount of talent they have in their own sections sometimes. And it happens in my orchestra too, unfortunately. Can you share... When you talk about the difficulty that you had after you won the principal job about what you're referring to? Sure, without naming names. Can, I, oh, you don't have to do I that. Can definitely, <laughs> I can definitely talk about the process that happens in most orchestras, I believe, is that once you win a job, you have a probationary period of about, it depends on orchestra, from 12 to 16 months. I think we had 18 months at the time. Mm -hmm. So basically a year and a half of probation. So you're performing and... You're being watched and, and all that stuff. And then you have meetings once a while. The panel has several meetings every couple of months or so. And then they get back to you, give you feedback. And it was all going really great for a long time. And I was getting great feedback. So I was super happy. And then all of a sudden, something changed. And suddenly, it was not going my way. And then towards the very end, it became quite negative, I believe. And then the vote came no for me Ooh. to grant me tenure. So I was not given tenure. But what was amazing is that the music director has the power at that point to do whatever they want. Mm -hmm. And so Marin was incredibly helpful to me, and she granted me a one-year position again as a principal. Okay. So I was so it was one once again I was temporary <laughs> for a while, and I think then there was some rules changes that just random people cannot come to meetings and vote, ah. you know, because that's what happened. And so the rules of the game changed and you no longer could do that. So then you have to be on the committee in order to vote on somebody's tenure. And after a few months, they voted me back in as a tenure track. And shortly after they gave me tenure. So there was, wow. you know, there was a lot of sleepless nights and worrying a lot of breathing <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> a lot of anxiety. It's never easy. Yeah, I'm sure that was really challenging. Did you get any kind of feedback as to why that happened? Or was it possibly just a couple rogue individuals who wanted power in the process? You know, once you start looking at somebody's performance, if you turn on Yo-Yo Ma's videos or Lynn Howell's or Rostropovich, if you watch them a hundred times, you'll find some mistakes, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I'm not comparing true. myself to those people, obviously. I mean, I, I wouldn't dare. But after a year or in a chair, you'll you start notice things that some people might not like. Not everybody's perfect. So, of course, I do have some faults, too, on my own. I, You know, somebody might not like that I played Messiah too aggressively or something, or without vibrato, or with vibrato, or this was something more, you know, little tiny things, or the intonation was too sharp. There are 10 people on the committee, and then everybody has their opinion, and sometimes you don't get the votes. And yeah. it's never, it's, yeah. it's easy to blame one person, but it's at the end, the majority had to vote. I must have done something, you know, at the time, and I fixed it. Yeah. I have fond memories of being back at Peabody. I always marveled at what you were able to accomplish on the cello. I remember you and Zul Bailey in particular having, doing sort of the interlocking challenge with each other all the time before <laughs> studio class and comparing notes and playing different things. Right. We were <laughs> always challenging who can play faster. <laughs> I think I let him win every time, but, you know, don't tell him. <laughs> <laughs> no, there was just like wonderful times because it's, it's great to have. And of course, you were there too. So we all had this camaraderie and I think healthy competition. It was never something unhealthy in a way. So I, I thought it was great to have that in the same studio. And of course, Mr. Cage was fabulous as a teacher and as a player, especially. It's always good to be encouraged and be motivated by the people around you. And I feel like if you surround yourself by people that are better than you, then that will force you to continue to push yourself forward to progress more. Moving to Peabody, when I transferred in as a sophomore, was really the right move for me because we had this collection of players like you guys that really kept me motivated to work hard and try and accomplish something. It was really special. Can you talk about then what are the qualities that make a good leader? And are these things that you had to work on in your position or did they come relatively naturally for you? That's a wonderful question. Thank you. I'm not sure if I can answer it eloquently, but uh, I can try. The cello section in Baltimore Symphony, it's really wonderful. We have all of them really fantastic musicians and, and cellists. And they're not only good in orchestra playing, but chamber music as well. And those qualities in my colleagues are so apparent when you play in a orchestra when you have to be alert and reacting to things in a split second a lot of times and everybody knows their parts obviously so that way it's much easier to be a principal that you don't have to deal with many issues if that was not the case with your colleagues but especially my stand partner his name is Lachazar Kostov mm -hmm. a wonderful Bulgarian cellist who is incredible as a stand partner as a number two and now he's in my absence number one so he's doing a fabulous job so having a great state partner really helps to be a principal so that level of ability in the section really helps in my job a lot i don't have to do any explanation of any kind because everybody knows their parts really well yeah of course being principal you kind of have to also anticipate many 
problems that might arise, like the VZs and who plays what and things like that. Sometimes the conductor doesn't even know, is not aware of. So you need to kind of solve those issues. And also you have to represent the section in a way to the conductor. And you have to do all the Boeings. <laughs> so. Right. The Boeings are one of the tasks that one has to do. And it's kind of strange because you're doing them months ahead of time. And usually there's not enough time to like actually play through all this stuff. But luckily there are Boeings from a lot of times from previous performances. And I usually leave them alone if, unless there are some huge changes. Yeah. Because I get the concert master part and the second violin and viola and they can compare that with what I have. And if they made changes, then I pay attention to that. And some of those things I change to the way I like to play, but then I actually consult with my colleagues if that's okay. Like there are certain bowings that I do in, for example, when we play Don Juan or things from the auditions or Verdi Requiem, I remember changing some bowings to be more economic, <laughs> so to speak, with the shifts and string crossings and like that. So I try to be very diplomatic and democratic with the Boeings. Yeah, that's a tough part of the job. And you said in your absence, so just so if anybody's wondering why you said that right now, Darius is recovering from rotator cuff surgery. So he's been out for a few months and will be returning, I assume, in the fall, right? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, I had the surgery in, in March and I don't recommend it <laughs> unless you have to do it because I've played in pain for years and years and it's gotten so bad that I could barely play through Schumann Symphony earlier in the, in the season. And then I, I played Brahms Double Concerto. That was my last thing right before the surgery. Wow. So that was just a lot of pain. And no matter how many Advil pills you take, it's just not going away because it was just so bad. And I had calcium buildup that was tearing the tendons inside of the rotator cuff and the doctor said you just have to do it otherwise it will never get better yeah. you know it's just gonna get worse so i went through the surgery and the recovery is super painful and long and i can now play for 10 20 minutes or so mm -hmm. without too much pain but i believe september is the time that i'll be back and was this something that happened as an injury that you remember or just something that happened over time do you know what led to that I don't think it was any injury, except, you know, maybe too much popper. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to scare actually, people <laughs> off of playing popper. We don't want to do well, that. <laughs> actually, it was Piatti probably that did that. No, I, I think there's no accident. It's just maybe overuse, maybe just my bad luck yeah. <laughs> this time, you know. So what experience do you have with doing competitions? Yes, of course, I took part in many of them. Even back home, I had some success winning some local competitions in Poland. And then at Peabody, I did the Tchaikovsky competition one time. Actually, I was still in Montgomery at the time. I had all this time to practice, but I never had luck to go past the second round. But I, I did consistently get in the big competitions of the second round, mm -hmm. which I thought was a pretty decent thing because you would go from 40 cellists to sometimes eight only. Yeah. You know? so, so that was being one of the eight in the world was not terrible. It, it actually felt pretty good. So I did Tchaikovsky and Rostropovich, and I did the Renner Rose three times. Oh, wow. With the same result. <laughs> <laughs> but you know i felt pretty good and i felt especially the last one i felt great about my performance i i thought i should have passed at the finals but they could only take three and i wish to think that i was number four <laughs> so it's okay it turned out okay i was actually already in baltimore symphony so practicing three concertos and two hour recital program at the same time as playing in orchestra was really 
tough. Might be why you ha- are having rotator cuff surgery. Maybe, maybe. Because, <laughs> you know, those competitions, especially those when I was at Peabody, when I would practice literally 12 hours a day, it was just crazy. Yeah. Because you know, especially when they were in the summer and there's nothing to do. So you kind of get stuck in that practice room forever. And maybe it's not not so healthy. <laughs> maybe it was as years went on, I think I learned how to practice a little smarter, you know, just like repeat it, repeat it. And the results were not so great, you know, at the end. We've talked a lot on this program about competitions and talked to some competition winners recently. And I think that the act of going through that and learning all that repertoire and playing all that repertoire and having the opportunity to perform it is really where the benefit comes from. I absolutely agree. You know, if you win, that would be great, of course, but I think just doing that makes you better and forces you to continue to progress and get better. And I'm, I'm sure that that helped you continue to do a better job in your job and prepare you for being principal. Absolutely. It brings you to another level. Every time I did one of those things that brought me up higher, I thought, and made me realize that this is something I want to do. And that helped me probably in the future orchestra auditions as well. Yeah. So if you could go back to your 18-year-old self when you first attended Peabody, knowing what you know now, what (laughs) advice would you give yourself? I want to be cheeky and say, quit the cello while you can. (laughs) But no, 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 no. I I think practice smarter and start with the excerpts earlier because it's really beneficial. And not until many auditions, I realized that playing excerpts perfectly at home is not not enough. Also, learning the actual context of the music is very important to know what the actual tempos are and what the nuances should be with the excerpt. It's just as important as when you're playing your Vojak Cello Concerto or Bach Suites. Those little excerpts, you know, they're 10 seconds long sometimes. It's so important to know how they should go. And actually, we had an audition very recently for two positions in the Baltimore Symphony. And being the chair of the committee, I would ask the players, can you please play it considerably faster or much slower? Yeah. Because I would hear Brahms' piano concerto solo played at the slowest, I mean, like, just so slow. Yeah. (laughs) It was just unbelievable. Like, somebody didn't do their homework to just listen to it once. So that's maybe my advice. Yeah. I know you didn't ask for advice about that, but that's, like, really important to know the context of the music that you're playing. And, of course, when you're studying your solo stuff, you are going to listen to recordings. So doing the same for the orchestra excerpts is very important as well. Yeah, for sure. Very sound advice. Well, thank you so much for joining us today on the Cello Sherpa podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much to Darius Skoroczewski for joining us today and sharing his story with us. And thank you for listening to another episode of the Cello Sherpa podcast. For more information on Darius and any of the links we spoke about today, check out our show notes by scrolling down on the episode. Be sure and catch our next episode where we interview cellist Nick Marischkal, who has spent the last two and a half years as assistant principal cellist of the Milwaukee Symphony Orchestra, and a few months ago he just won a section position in the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra. We talk about his journey through his childhood love of visual art and composition, and then finding his way to the cello and having tremendous success at orchestra auditions. We're here to serve you. So if you have questions or topic suggestions you would like to cover in future episodes, please use the contact page on our website, thecellosherpa.com, or tweet them at us, at thecellosherpa. You will also find information about the specific services we offer on the website. 
Don't forget to follow us and rate us on whatever platform you get your podcasts. This helps us climb the rankings so other people can find us. Today's episode was produced, edited, and recorded by me, Joel Dallow.